Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch, where we talk with experts and practitioners who are pushing the envelope in cybersecurity. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, focusing on what matters, we talk with Justin Berman, CISO of Zenefits. With experience both advising and running cybersecurity team, Justin brings an incredibly clear and focused approach to defending system. His way of looking at the challenge, both from the defender's and the attacker's perspective, is simple but incredibly powerful. Hear how he approaches things and much more in this interview. So I saw you just made the switch from New York to SF. Yeah, I did. I just did the reverse. So so how's your <laughs> how's your move going? <laughs> Good so far. My I actually have my stuff finally. It took a while to get out to the other coast, but <laughs> it's nice to be actually fully moved in. I mean, SF is like a lot the same in the sense that it's another it's the other like really big or one of the other really big urban areas, but you know, it's so it feels kind of like one more city, but ultimately I feel like the, I mean, the weather's objectively better. You picked a good time of year. <laughs> I will give you that. And also, like, I, I resonate a lot with the culture in SF. I like New York. I also like nature a lot. So yeah. for me, that was a really That's important great. vector. I'm going to just move this. Please do. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, it's okay. It, it's on the outside. I thought it was on the inside. You're, you're gold. Yeah. I mean, what about, walk me through, because I think it's it's sort of important to uh, kind of how you view the world now is walk us through kind of your pathway into to your role now. Like what was sure. that? What, what did that look like? A long, I mean, I, I went to school actually for computer engineering, not for cybersecurity. I started as a developer. I disliked building other people's ideas all the time. It felt really... And maybe that was, you know, in retrospect now, when I see developers or engineers, they like get a lot more say in what they do. So maybe it was the company I started with. But that happened to kickstart me to wonder what else was out there. A friend of mine was working in an AppSec consultancy called Aspect Security. They just got bought by EY. But we, so so he invited me in. He was like, we think we can turn developers into really smart AppSec engineers. And then I kind of like, you know, I started doing, you know, every, what everyone starts doing, which is like pen tests and code reviews. And then I, from there, moved up through kind of the complexity scale in application security. So, you know, I did pen tests and code reviews, and then I did like, and then I ran them, and then I ran sets of them at a time, and then I ran like, and then I built out a computer-based training offering for the consultancy, and then I built out a like, I guess I built out like a strategic advisory services for the consultancy, specifically focused on AppSec. And then eventually I got to the point where it was like, and I have consulted for a long time and like I feel like our clients keep making the same mistakes and I don't understand why. And I feel like it must be our advice. Like if it was if it was like only a couple times that it happened, I'd be like, oh, that's a client problem. But if clients consistently fail to implement what you suggest, there's there's a gap there in what you're suggesting. And so I decided I really had to go in-house to actually understand what it was like to run in-house. Uh-huh. Went to a hedge fund, ran there, like started as an architect, but ended up running their security architecture function. That taught me a lot about what it was, what the difference between being in-house and being uh, being a consultant is like. It reminded me that being consult, or it taught me that being a consultant is my retirement choice. Like it's way easier to be a consultant than it is to be in-house. <laughs> you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I left the hedge fund, it was for a head of security role or a, a VP of InfoSec role at a startup here in New York called Flatter and Health. They were great. I got the chance to build a team absolutely from scratch from a really early point. Luckily for me, the first startup I worked for cared about security and they cared about it enough that they hired it very early. I was only the 60th employee there. Wow. And so 
they also gave me a lot of freedom because I like tend to approach problems from a very deep analytical mindset. And so they gave me a lot of freedom to build the things that I thought were necessary and hire the team I thought was necessary. So it also taught me a ton about hiring when you don't have the hedge fund money to throw at people and like how you make the right decisions there and how you build like a team that is as efficacious as possible when you don't want to scale to huge size. And then from there, you know, like I spent three years at Flatiron really building out the program and the team there. And when I left, it was because I felt that I had accomplished most of what I wanted to. I had created a relatively stable security organization that was moving from a transformative, like grow a lot, change a lot, change the company a lot towards a more stable operational yeah. world. And and I just know about myself that I find the 200% change interesting and the 2% change like a little bit more monotonous. So I tend to optimize and I think I'm better at working within that like transform this build this from scratch world. And that was why I went over to Zenefits because Zenefits really needed, um, you know, that they've done a lot of work to transform in a lot of ways at, at the same time. And part of what they wanted was to kind of transform the way they approach security and they're willing to put the money into it and they're willing to put the resources behind it that make a difference. Yeah, no, that's, that was a great answer. And really to pull like one thread out of that uh, thinking you sort of mentioned not kind of having uh, hedge fund money, right? <laughs> sure. So most most people who are not, you know, not a hedge fund kind of have to, they have to make this sort of risk return kind of calculation. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things that I thought brought up in your, in your talk was to do that calculation for both the defender and the attacker, right? Sure. Like walk those who weren't, you know, weren't able to sit in kind of how you do that and, and, and what, what goes into that sort of calculation. Sure. So I think a lot of what I think about when I think about that kind of cost math is scalability. On the defender side first, what I look for is what I try to know is lots of different paths. Like when I think about my adversaries, I think about the, each one of them has a set of different paths they're going to take to try and achieve a set of objectives that they have against my organization, whether it's stealing money or data or whatever, or like, you know, DDoSing us or whatever. And so when I, any one of those I can evaluate. And when I look at a lot of them at once or try ideally all of them at once, I can look for commonalities. And so for the defender, you look for, the commonality of where is a part of those attacks that are being used against you that is across many different yeah. kill chains. And so if you can defend against that, that's a scalability question. Like you have essentially say you can you can save a lot of money by saying I'm going to focus on this thing like, you know, as we t we talked about phishing is like super common as a delivery mechanism. And so because phishing is so common, targeting that is very scalable for a defender. And then on the attacker side, the same thing is what to think about. They want attacks that scale. And they also want attacks for which, or rather, there's actually two aspects that I think of attacker costs that are interesting to consider. One is like, they want to choose attacks that scale effectively, reliably as well. So like, you know, they can use phishing because everyone has email and everyone uses email. So like their targets are ubiquitous. And likewise, they want an attack that is you know, it's not going to hit everyone all the time. Like, you know, you're going to have a one to 5% click through rate on phishing or whatever, assuming you've done any training in your organization. But you, the other side of that kind of attacker cost thing is like for, a, for us to consider, for a defender to consider is what's expensive for them to change. So if you think about phishing, phishing is a very like known, understood, and you can build tools around delivering phishing attacks. But if 
phishing attacks no longer work, like let's say for some reason they're just totally ineffective, then they have to figure out a whole new mode of delivery of their original. So they have to move towards something like a watering <coughs> hole attack like we talked about in the talk or some other like target or delivery mechanism, and that's expensive for them. So when I think about the math, to create the highest return on investment in re risk reduction, I'm looking for the places where I can break lots of attacker chains at one time, and it's going to be difficult for them to actually change to then bring me back into their target set. Yeah. I mean, and, and tied with that is sort of another, sort of a corollary of making yourself look different than the crowd, right? Like thinking about yourself as how, what is, what is your system? What does your infrastructure look like relative to somebody else's, right? The old joke about like, the two hikers and like putting your <laughs> shoes on, right? Like they're going to attack somebody. Right? Sure. It's just, who's that going to be, right? Who's the slowest, slowest person in that? Yeah, I think that's, that I, I, you know, it's interesting. I actually, I, I agree with you, but I think that this is part of the reason that we need more intelligence sharing because I want to raise the bar <laughs> not just for my own organization, but like if I use, if I have enough intelligence sharing spread throughout a wide enough community, then I make it like what I'm doing is forcing the attackers to pivot because, you know, when, you know, if you imagine for a second, a world in which everyone somehow impossibly immediately shares all intelligence that they get, that means every time an attacker uses a piece of malware that at once it gets detected, the entire world is immunized against it and then they can't use it anymore. Yeah. And so, like, the same idea works for phishing or any other part of an attack. And that, so, like, at the same time as I agree with you completely that, like, I just don't want to be the slowest hiker yeah. when the bear's coming. At the same time, what I really want is the network effect of, allow, of helping everyone, like, I don't know, put a branch in front or put a tree in front of the bear. <laughs> because ultimately, or put a tree there for us to climb. Because ultimately... Like, I want to make it expensive for attackers to make mistakes. A lot more expensive than it is right now. You must have been listening to Paul Vixie or something. <laughs> so how, in practice, how is that, how are you trying to do that or implementing that in practice? Right? Is there sure. a way that you're kind of finding to share, to share with the community or, or benefit so, from that? I think that there's like, there's formal and informal channels for that. The formal channels that exist for that is, you know, like Facebook has Threat Exchange, there's the ISACs in, in the world, like, you know, FS ISAC for financials and HS ISAC for healthcare services. And those have, in my past, certainly been effective channels for information sharing. When you're a startup, it's interesting because usually the ISAC members that contribute the most are these huge banks or these pharmaceutical industry companies or, you know, big hospitals. And so their overlap of interesting information won't necessarily be that great, but it's certainly a way for you to promote that information exchange effectively. The informal channels end up being the highest value, though, where you're getting beyond something like sharing IOCs like caches or stuff and towards like, hey, we see bad guys doing X thing. Like we see, you know, like an uptick in targeted spear phishing against our CEO that ha that takes this form. And that's like, I wish there was some way to scale that more, or rather, I don't know the right way to scale that more effectively. But for me, it's just the personal relationships I have with other C CISOs and CSOs. You know, like when you sit on, <laughs> when you sit on a Slack channel with a lot of other CISOs every day and they are like the inherently you know, when something comes up and you trust these other people and you have the conversation yeah. and that immediately spreads that knowledge to that group. 
Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I was having a, a very different conversation with some uh, ex-professor at University of Washington, thinking about kind of threat threat modeling and sort of trust models, like how you. I mean, he's got a whole system with, I think it's Trident is the open source system. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, oh, where, where it's essentially how you create a community where you have trust and, you know, that, that, that typically breaks down at, at some sort of like, once you start to hit triple digits, right? Sure. Communities and even getting that big is, is pretty hard. So it's a, it's a really interesting model where you... Basically, you don't let somebody in unless three or four people vouch for you and you have to say how well I know them. And it was fascinating, but I'm still looking for it. That's why I keep asking. Right? <laughs> so hard. find it. <laughs> and it's a hard problem, especially right now, because there's so much belief that any, I mean, like in, if you think about defense space, they would be right in saying any data that they release that is non-public in nature has the potential to allow say like a foreign state to make different decisions about attacking the US government or something totally. like that versus like but in like the in our corporate space you know there's the people like Facebook who have or Google or Microsoft or you know Merck or Citigroup that have that massive target set that are like, yes, they legitimately should be careful about what they share and what they don't. Right. But then there's all the rest of us that are being attacked day in, day out by often frequently common adversaries. And those common, like, you know, you're more of a target of opportunity than you are like the target. Yeah. And so like, we should feel freer to share that information than we probably do right now. And it goes back to this culture of like, I have to protect everything I know. I have to protect everything like that anyone else knows about my security program because if bad guys know about it, then they're right. going to be able to attack me more effectively. When in reality, like if an adversary is decided that you're important like they will research enough about you to have an idea about your security program anyway yeah i mean if you truly are like the target of a an apt like what are you gonna do i mean (laughs) if you're truly the target of an apt then unless you exist with enough resources to either enough resources or a small enough attack surface then then like an apt will be successful because ultimately like if if an APT really wants to come after you, like, and they are willing to spend the resources on it, like, they'll just trick you into hiring the wrong person. And like, when are you ever going to defend against that? Yeah. Background checks are ineffective against spies. Yeah. Did you? Um, I don't know. I, I'm sure you've followed it with more detail than I have. But I was listening to the interview with the, one of the old, the Anthem guys who was talking about that attack and essentially realization that that was well, one that it was. Likely, likely the sure. Chinese, right? And that, in fact, that there were two APTs going on, likely from the Chinese. And say, right. He's like, we blocked one, and we didn't realize that there was a second, right? So that level of, I mean, it being in the space that you are, you know, with sort of some very sensitive data, kind of how do you think about kind of that level of adversary? And, and any, you know, don't feel like you need to share anything. Oh, so I think that, like, the honest truth around thinking about defending against APTs for organizations that are not remotely at the resource levels to be able to do so effectively is you will take the best effort, like you'll make their lives harder. And that should be your goal, like to make yourself just less, this gets back to the slowest hiker versus bear thing. Like, whereas you know, I can immunize myself and help immunize the community against commodity everything. It's much different 
to try and stop customized, targeted activities against you because, frankly, they, they rely on a level of research about your organization that you can't, that is not scalable. And is like that's an accepted choice by that group if they're actually going to target you. Now, a thing I would, maybe the, the really blunt way of saying this is like the problem I have with focusing on and talking about APTs for everyone that's not a city group is oftentimes it is a technical it is techno fetishism it is like i want to def i want to believe that i'm important enough that i have to do this right now and that all the tools and technologies associated with it are cool and interesting and popular and so i'm going to focus on this because of that like technology aspect of it as opposed to recognizing that like you know you may still have significant gaps in vulnerability management and like if you can't defend against you know a day two attack what exactly do you think you're going to do about a zero day and and uh, you know we're we're in the media space although we are a little bit different than some so you know, we recognize that like Road and Track puts the Ferrari on the front of of, of the magazine, right? Sure. They don't put like the newest Escort. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like they sweet should. car. <laughs> It'll get you there <laughs> every time. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a great point. Like, what we need. I mean, ultimately, I think part of the like part of the issue with the way security people talk in general is the fact that they want to talk about the Ferrari because it's sexy and not because it's important. And if they if they were able to distinguish between the attractive and the important, yes. then you would see the escorts on the cover because the people that we would be lauding are the people that like deliver security day in, day out, reliably, and stop the majority of the things. Yeah. And that's like ultimately where most security programs need to be aiming rather than aiming at, like I can stop the Chinese because no you can't yeah and and just to like you know truly beat a dead horse on this analogy right like what's the the one thing that I think is interesting is when the technology you know the newest carburetor is developed for a Ferrari and then slowly like migrates down to you know a, a mass production available technology sure and, like how, how does that process happen and and you know as you sort of look at the landscape and think about technology that's out there, what's as I, as I mentioned, we like to talk about kind of what's what might work or what is working. What technology? What sort of new strategies are you seeing that is is cool and interesting? Cool and interesting. So for me, I think the areas that I'm the most fascinated with right now have to do with how I can. Ultimately, it comes back to like a, a team efficiencies thing. Like I love orchestration stuff. I this is like my area of technological interest. And so the reason I care, though, has to do, I think, with practicalities. I'm sure some people would argue that I'm not practical enough about it. But I think about tools, you know, like Phantom Cyber is famous. You know, like there's lots of competitors for Phantom. And when you can take all of the grunt work that gets done day to day, the Automate the, the work that is ultimately automatable right. that doesn't really require a person's intellect and, and experience, and then make those things to do the automation behind them yeah. and orchestrate those things to happen in a way that is stable and reliable. Like, not only have you 
increased the quality of your security program because you know a thing that you need to happen is going to, but you've also freed all of these really smart people to work on much more interesting yeah. problems. Smart, smart, expensive, hard to find people. <laughs> right. And so for me, like if I had to choose a single area of focus, it's not like the latest AI or ML stuff. It's like, how do I make, how do I scale my teams more effectively right now? And for me, scaling my teams more effectively is about finding ways to take the work that is ultimately more grunt work and requires less of their intellect and automate that. Yeah. And that's such an, there's a, there's always a tension there, but it's really interesting. It's like, if you've done something three times, four times, five times, you should be thinking about how do I automate? Sure. Because then once it's automated, you know, consistently it'll be done the right way. But then you always worry, like if nobody's actually doing any this, right, then we forget what we actually did. And like <laughs> a year from now, like, oh, whoops, we left, you know, something new, something changed and the decisions we made in that, right? Totally. But that what you just said is exactly why I focus on how do I create signals around stuff that I automate, right? And I don't just mean this server didn't fall over signals. I mean, like, if I'm, if I'm say, it's a good example of automate. Oh, a great example of automation is like in the AppSec space is like, I want to automatedly run a bunch of stuff in the tool chain for, de for like deploys. Like I want to run static analysis tools or dynamic analysis tools or custom developed linters or whatever else in that tool chain automatically. And if a new vulnerability emerges, like, that that awareness or that in, that's a piece of intelligence for my program and that is like oh wait i have to like make sure that either we can detect this like i have to test and thus i have a signal about whether we do detect this thing or not and if we don't like we have to then do something about it so it's key is like you have to build signals beyond just the thing is still running into the process yeah and to sort of expand on that and, and something that I heard you talking about was thinking about how how security is a part of sort of the culture, but also like the lifeblood of what you're doing, right? Walk, walk me through kind of like how you, where you see sort of security fitting into into like the core business at, at sure. Zenefits, but in, but in general. So at Zenefits, I think I have this amazing advantage because I have, my CEO, Jay Fulcher, is incredible and like really gets it. And I think a lot of our executive team like really gets it. But the ultimately, the, the posture that we want to aim at at Zenefits and the way we fold security into that conversation is that security becomes a competitive advantage for us, not just, oh, we're, we don't want to have the conversation with customers that's just like, oh, we're safe. Yeah. Like you can trust us to hold your data. We want to have the conversation with customers that's like, this is what it takes to be safe in this in this world based on like, you know, you're you know, you're trusting us with your payroll, you're trusting us with your HR data, you know, like you're trusting us with your employees' background checks, all that kind of stuff. And so like we want to have the conversation that is with customers that is more around how do we build a, or I guess this isn't so much with customers, but like internally, the, the conversation is like, how do we build security into the DNA to the point where it makes sales easier, where it makes us win deals that we wouldn't have won otherwise, where it ultimately in some ways allows us to box out our competitors because they have worse answers. And I think that that sounds like, that sounds very almost monopolistic in nature, but it's not. It's an admission that like we do security well you should have like our competitors should have to do that. We want to raise the bar around it. And the second, the second area of like really changing the conversations with our customers is not stopping at the, 
point at which you say like we've built a security program, we built safety, but like how do we build capabilities for our customers that keep them safer? Like the difference between, you know, an example is like companies are typically not liable for when one of their customers loses their passwords. Right. But like if you if you take the time to build a relationship with a with a customer that you know you find when their accounts have been taken over and then you have that relationship with them where you reach out and you help them recover their account and everything else like that's a much different conversation to have with your customers and that's that's taking security and making it a selling point yeah. as opposed to simply having security being an expectation yeah and i, I mean maybe it, it seems like over the last kind of couple of years the awareness of potential sort of issues around cybersecurity is, is kind of it's it's maybe it's the election hacking or right or Equifax or whatnot right like when my grandmother who's ninety four is like asking <laughs> me about Equifax I know it's permeated it culture. definitely has <laughs> so it sounds like you're lucky enough to be in a place where like the the very top of the C suite kind of gets it yeah but you know it's as, it's as interesting always to study the relationships that work as well as it is to study those that are broken what do you think. In that relationship, how do you sort of talk about cyber security as an issue, as a as a budget item? Right, those conversations are happening for CISOs, sure, everywhere. So I think like one of the biggest challenges that CISOs have right now is that they're still kind of in the majority shoved into this place of being a pure of being seen as purely a cost center for the organization. You know, similar to how most organizations see corporate IT as a pure cost center, and so like when you talk about it, you can't allow yourself to fall into that mindset where like someone is setting a budget for you and you're falling within it. I think there's a level of proactivity that you start with or you have to move towards. And yes, you're going to see pushback from your from the C-suite or you're going to see pushback from other managers or whatever else. But like if you as the, the leader of an entire security function start by saying like, I'm going to define the budget that we should have. And then like... I'll acknowledge that, you know, into myself, I'll acknowledge I might not get everything I want, but I'll at least like... You're thinking hedge fund money, right? To start, (laughs) right? You go there. I'll at least least define the budget that I think is like really necessary. And to your point about hedge fund money is really interesting. Like different companies have such different cultures about setting budgets where sometimes like you have to build in padding just because like they, the CFO, no matter what, is going to cut. Luckily, the CFO we have at Zenefits is like very... He likes to be really precise, I think, about what is necessary and why. And it's, so he's not just taking random or like a, a flat cut. He's like trying to understand the business impact of the firm of different projects that are going to happen. And so that for me is great because that allows me to have a conversation with him. And I happen to also be lucky that he cares about security, period. Yeah. But to come back to your thing about culture, like changing, excuse me, changing culture at the firm or changing culture at any firm really is a lot about reinforcement more than anything else. Like you have to reinforce with your C-suite, this is important, this is why, this is real. That here's how I'm showing you this is real. Like here's here's like what happened to, you know, our competitors. Here's this breach and the impact that it had. And like some some of the breaches that have happened recently, like Equifax is a great example, actually. Equifax when it happened cost the world something like four billion dollars of market cap. It might have been more than it might have been like six billion dollars of market cap or something like that. And that's like 
whoa, third of investor value disappeared off the face of the planet because of a you know because of this breach and the and the, and the fallout the from it. Goes, and yeah. the CEO goes and that's actually yeah. the CEO and the CISO going thing. But the CISO going thing is like expected almost. Yeah, but the CEO going, I think that certainly right. gets people's eyes open. And we see like a lot more pressure on CEOs to take responsibility for security, and that's certainly impacting their view of it. You know, like I can tell you that like. Jay definitely feels a degree of personal responsibility for it, and thus he cares and interacts more about it. Convincing a CEO that their job is at risk is like a very dangerous position to be in because, like, you know, you come to a CEO and saying like you should care about what I do because if I do it badly, you could get fired too. Right, yeah, is like a really <laughs> bleh, time, time hard conversation. Like, you know, <laughs> but I think that like the biggest part like it's also important to recognize that some culture is built from top down and bottom up and so the bottom up part especially is like repetition 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 and building in this or i think like building in the opportunities for security to positively affect the company's culture like instead of just security being like a no factory security has to be a like we're going to move forward together and we're going to do these things or how do i make it easier for you to move faster while we're safer a great example of that is like you know where security has the opportunity to shift away from say like token based 2fa towards like push based 2fa is amazing like i i mean one of the most powerful pieces of security <laughs> tech that you deploy in any organization is is two-factor and or or for that matter is like single sign-on you want to you want to make a bunch of people at a company happy tell them they have to remember two passwords instead of 200 and they're going to be like oh my god this, my life is so much better right now yeah and eventually it'll fade in the background but it fades into the background as part of the culture of the company like yeah we have we, we don't have to remember all these passwords and it becomes like a if someone wants to buy a tool where someone has to remember a new password they're like why why don't you why can't we just use this thing that we use to sign in and so that's like ultimately that's cultural change that happens and that outlasts anything technologically that you will build so much good stuff. I feel like we could sit here for like, you know, an hour, right? But I, I we'd have to start buying beers. Right? You've been you've been chatting all day. I've been I've been firing stuff at you. What What do you want to talk about? Here's an open platform. What do you, you know, if you had a if you have a small soapbox to stand on, right? If I have a small soapbox to stand on right now, it is about the fact that like hiring is so hard right now, and it's so hard for a variety of reasons, and part of which is because we are not open-minded enough about people yeah. right now we all want the same set of people we all want the person that's done this security thing for five years i've seen job descriptions for technologies that are not haven't been around for five years in which the expectation is 10 years of experience and so like the open-mindedness towards non-traditional hires has to increase and for that matter the willingness to train has to increase and maybe the broader version of the soapbox is like one of the biggest challenges that security has, and one of the reasons I think people leave a lot, because 18 months is the standard tenure for a CISO, and like, I would argue it seems to be even short of that for your really good security engineers. One of the reasons I think that's true is because we have promoted a new generation of managers who are predominantly technologists so quickly and not invested the same level of like management training in them mm -hmm. that companies would absolutely invest in other places. And so you have under experienced managers trying to retain the most sought after staff on the planet or some of, you know, data scientists are probably just as in demand as us. Yeah. And you have like 
you also have managers that like don't know as much about how to manage. And so they're creating a negative opportunity for these employees. Like they don't know how to create a career path for people. They don't know how to like navigate some of the complex like social and psychological issues that staff have. So for me, like one of the reasons I think I am even successful is because I care a lot about management. Like I, it sounds weird, but like I've, at the same time as I put a lot of emphasis on being an effective technologist and, and being a technology leader, like part of being a good leader, period, and especially when I have staff reporting me, is just deeply be- like caring about people. And so on the one hand, we have all these semi-inexperienced managers that are like causing that, that have a lot more churn because they just don't know how to navigate some of the issues and create paths for people so that they can see the the long term, like this is how my career is going to go. Yeah. And also at the same time, we have like some of the most in-demand staff on the planet. And so they are constantly being offered a chance to make, you know, incrementally more or right. a lot more. And so like you have that, that, that by itself is just one of these awful circumstances or, or awful confluence of circumstances. And I think companies have to start investing in their security leadership the same way they would invest in other business leaders. Yeah. No, that was great. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> and like, and that transition from kind of like player to coach is such a, a challenging one, right? And as you become a more senior, right, it's less, less of your own sort of individual sort of work and, and yeah. con- contribution and more, how do I get the best out of all of these people? And that's, you know, that's not an easy transition for a lot of people, I think. I and, totally agree about that. Yeah. And um, I think there's also like such a, this is true across lots of jobs, but like security is just one. So security is just one more of those, but like we still, we still largely teach people that the way to move forward in your career is to manage people. And we need to, I, I deeply think that like, some people like that yeah. and some people don't. And we have to create a path for people that do not want reports that is just as rich and rewarding and complex and like <laughs> compensated yeah. as the, like the people who have, you know, hundreds of reports yeah. at the end of the day, because ultimately like the impact that a really phenomenal yeah. engineer has can be just as, just as high as what a director or a CISO has. Yeah. How do you just, you know, they're, they're the rock star player and they're the, Sure. The Michael Jordans, the Steph Curry's, right? <laughs> right. You know, as important as Steve Kerr, right? Okay. Yeah, totally. And in those cases, he makes more money. Okay. This, anything else, you you know, anything you want to pitch, anything you want to like people to know about? Yeah. I mean, like come join my team. We have okay. really smart people and, you know, I'm expanding it significantly and I'm always happy to, to talk with smart people, yeah. even just to learn from other people. Yeah. So like benefits is hiring. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll include some links and stuff to to your site and, and any of the positions you have and, and whatnot there. So you can share that. And, you know, having watched, uh, taking the, the half hour it took to get you into this interview and, and see, how, <laughs> see how nice you were with, with all the people who came up and had questions. I can vouch that, uh, that that'll be a good experience for them. Cool. Thank Justin, you so much. This was awesome. Really, you know, terrific, such a great answer.